Well, I want to draw your attention this morning to a, a partnership we have in the community that is uh, just a joy to be a part of in this, a really vital ministry. It's called Human Coalition. Uh, you may know them by one of their many other previous names, but they are now known as Human Coalition, and they reach out to women and families who are experiencing crisis pregnancies. And uh, they, uh, they have their annual event, 4,000 Steps, uh, coming up Saturday, April 28th at Open Door Church in Raleigh. Um, you can get information at their website. One of our people who are involved, uh, Daphne, is in the lobby with a table with all kinds of information about how you or perhaps your small group is looking for a way to do something um, missionally in our community. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing to do together as a group. So... Uh, that information is available in the lobby, but our elders are, are really behind this ministry, and towards that end, every year we have, if, if you noticed in your, in your bulletin, there's a column for um, our Journey of Faith Capital campaign. We give away 10% of that money as uh, an expression of worship to the Lord and in, in anticipation of what we're going to do in about a year or a little more, two years, when we're debt-free. Um, so we give away 10% of that money, and this first quarter's tithe, so to speak, is going to Human Coalition. It's only probably four or $5,000, but in a year, when we're debt-free, we'll be able to do 10 times that much uh, with those resources, and uh, we're really, really excited about that. And I hope you can add to that personally and join them at this important event that's coming up in a, in a couple of weeks. Now, we have uh, today, obviously, we're having the Lord's Supper together at the close of our time. And the Lord's table at North Wake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ who is walking in fellowship with Him. If you are willing to repent of your sin and draw near to Christ and experience His grace, then this table is for you as, as a follower of Christ. And again, we like to use the side aisles and the center aisle to come to the table and these aisles here to return to your seat just in terms of getting back and forth uh, easily. So, you can open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, um, probably the first chapter, and I'll pray for us again as we, as we do that. Bow with me, please. Lord, have mercy on us now. Teach us how, how to love you, how to see you, how to worship you through the book of Joshua as we enter it together today. Um, again, give us ears to hear and gladness of heart to receive it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, the 2013 commencement speech at MIT was made by a guy named Drew Houston. He's the founder of Dropbox. If you use Dropbox, he's the founder. This is some of, the, some of his remarks went like this. He says, when I think about it, the happiest and most successful people I know don't just love what they do, they're obsessed with solving an important problem, something that matters to them. He says, they remind me of a dog chasing a tennis ball. He said, their eyes go a little crazy. The leash snaps, they go bounding off, plowing through whatever gets in the way. He says, so it's not about pushing yourself. It's about finding your tennis ball, the thing that pulls you. And he asks this question, what is your tennis ball? It's a really good question. What is your tennis ball? 
And it helps you realize that picking your tennis ball really matters. And there's so many things vying for our heart's affections these days. Uh, some days we feel like this. Watch this little clip. Yeah, that's us. Um, you know what? What really should be your tennis ball? What, what should be the thing that you chase with joy and abandon? Um, and mercifully, Jesus, as followers of Jesus, he helps us with this. When he says in Mark chapter 12, Someone asks him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It seems that Jesus wants knowing and loving our God to be our tennis ball, to be the thing that we pursue with joy and abandon and this is uh, embedded in the language of our, of our church's uh, mission statement. There's a phrase in it. It talks about us becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. Shorthand for that, we call it M&M worshipers, right? Not this kind of M&M worshipers, but this kind of M&M worshipers, people who have Three great loves that they are giving themselves to. A love for God, a love for the church, God's people, and a love for our neighbors who are outside of, of this room, outside of this community. And today, I want us to think about that first circle that we're devoting ourselves to, our love for God, the thing that Jesus says is the most important thing that we can give ourselves to. How can we make loving God our tennis ball? How do we make loving, knowing and loving God the thing that we pursue with joy and abandon? And um, today what I'd like to do, we'll use the early part of the book of Joshua to do this, but there's two things that help me, two very simple things. I want to share those with you uh, today. The first is praying a simple little prayer I call it praying Peter's prayer, and it's taken from Peter's profession of love for Jesus in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, Jesus, or Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you know that I love you. And then I, I add this little phrase, this little request, help me to love you more. It's a very simple little prayer um, that I try to pray each morning and as often as I can throughout the day. Lord, you know that I love you. Help me to love you more. Jesus says it's, that's supposed to be our tennis ball. That's, that's the most important thing in the world. Um, and it's one of the prayers that I, I attach to this. I wear a little bracelet with a cross on it. And it's one of the prayers that I attach to that bracelet. When I'm mindful of this bracelet, it's one of the things that comes to my mind to, to pray, to confess my love for God and to ask him to help me to love him more. Um, now, 
Tish Warren, in her, in her helpful book, um, Liturgy of the Ordinary, she, she says this. She says, we move in patterns that we have set over time, day by day. These habits and practices shape our loves, our desires, and ultimately who we are and what we worship. Whoever we are, whatever we believe, wherever we live, whatever, we, whatever our consumer preferences may be, we spend our days doing things. We live in routines formed by habits and practices. And then she advocates this, taking up practices and habits that aim our love and desire toward God. Our hearts and our loves are shaped by what we do again and again and again. The crucible of our formation, she says, is in the monotony of our daily routines. It's in the repetitive and the mundane that I begin to learn to love, to listen, to pay attention to God and to those around me. And I, I read you that to help you see that you, if you attach this kind of prayer to an everyday occurrence in your life, part of your everyday life, um, it helps you find rhythm in praying this thing that then begins to shape our hearts as God grants our requests. So this little prayer, Lord, you know that I love you. Help me to love you more, can be one of those heart re-aiming practices. Um, it could be your toothbrushing prayer. You could pray it every time you brush your teeth. I hope you brush your teeth every day. You, could, you would pray this every day. It could be your hair brushing prayer. Um, some, some brush their hair less than others, but you it could be your hairbrushing prayer. It could be your car starting little prayer. I think you get the idea. Attach it to something that you do every day or most every day. You pray it in the shower, whatever you do on a regular basis. And, and use that as a time, as a prompt, as a little reminder to confess your love for God and to ask Him to help you to love Him more. Now, as for me, I don't think I'm ever sure that I am praying the will of God for me than when I am praying this prayer. I know I am praying the center of the will of God for me when I pray this little prayer. So that's one thing that helps me redirect my heart towards um, making loving God my, my tennis ball. There's a second thing, and this is the thing I want us to think about and experience today as we look at the early chapters of Joshua, and that is um, looking for God when I open up the Bible. I know that sounds intuitively obvious, right? Looking for God when I open the Bible. There's so many wonderful things you can learn from the Bible about culture and the will of God and language and poetry and literature and creation. But I like to think that the most important thing you can look for in the Bible is God. And so when I read the Bible, I look for God. I look for insights about who He is, about what He's like. I'm looking for what the pages of Scripture show me is good and beautiful about my God. I am, I am on a treasure hunt of sorts, and God is that treasure. So honestly, even above looking for God's will and guidance from God in the pages of Scripture, although that's a good and beautiful thing, and I do that, I, I look for God himself and ask him to show me who he is. And that, and that makes it perfect sense if loving God is supposed to be our tennis ball, the thing we pursue with joy and abandon. And so today, 
we're going to review the early chapters of the book of Joshua from this frame of mind. Okay. What kind of God is in the early pages of the book of Joshua? How is God showing himself to us? What is lovely and beautiful about our God in these early pages of the book of Joshua? Now, Carson preached last week for us. He kind of reintroduced us to the, to the book of Joshua as he tackled chapter 6 after being away for our, our Lenten hiatus as we did a Lent study. Um, but for reminder's sake again today, I'd like you to watch the early part of this really helpful review um, from the Bible Project people of the book of Joshua. We'll just watch the early bit of it, see if you can track with it here. The book of Joshua Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the River Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5... All right, there you go. I hope that's helpful for you. I hope it brings back to mind what we were studying before we stepped out during the season of Lent to get our hearts ready for Easter. Now we're stepping back in. Carson did that for us with chapter 6, but today we want to review together those chapters, that, that content that he just talked about, um, to look for God and see if we can stoke our love for him uh, just a little bit more from these early chapters of Joshua. So, starting in the very first verses of the book, Joshua chapter 1. After the death of, Mo death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And so that's kind of setting the scene. They are ready to enter the promised land under Joshua's leadership, right? 
And then God says these beautiful words to Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He says, I will be with you. This is the first thing I love about the God of the early chapters of of Joshua, our God. He says, I'll be with you. This echoes what Moses had just said to Joshua a page or two earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, right? When just before Moses dies, he says to Joshua, it's the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And then God directly, again in Deuteronomy 31, says to Joshua, The Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to them. I will be with you. If we go back to Joshua chapter 1, he's going to say it again in verse 9. Don't be frightened, Joshua. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. If we flipped over to chapter 3, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know you know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. If you went to verse, chapter 6, The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So, I'm just thinking, I think we might be on to a subtle theme here, right? You're picking up on it? The Lord intends to be with his people, to be for them, to never fail them or forsake them. The writer of the book of Hebrews takes this quote and expands it for us explicitly. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so he says, we can be free from the love of money because God will never leave us. We can be free from fear because God is with us. He is our our helper. There's a lady, her name is uh, Denise Peraza. She's 27 years old. She's one of the survivors of the 2015 San Bernardino shootings, if you remember those. Great tragedy. Um, Her life was spared, but not not because the the shooters saw her and turned the other way, but because a valiant man named Shannon Johnson shielded her body with his own and saved her life. And this is how Denise describes that day. She says, Wednesday morning at 10.55 a.m., we were seated next to each other at a table, joking about how we thought the large clock on the wall might be broken because time seemed to be moving so slowly. I would never have guessed that only five minutes later, we would be huddled next to each other under the same table, using a fallen chair as a shield from over 60 rounds of bullets being fired across the room. While I cannot recall every single second that played out that morning, I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these three words, I got you. I got you. And there's a sense in which these are God's three words to you. I got you. I'm with you. I'm for you. 
I will never fail you. I will never forsake you. In a sense, God says, I got you. He says, as Joshua 1 records it, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And the language, the famous language of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Right? He doesn't abandon us in our troubles. He is with us. Just like he was with them on the edge of the Jordan in their day. And, and this was why, this is one of the great symbols in those early passages of Joshua, why the Ark of the Covenant is so central to all of this. Um, notice in chapter 3 it says, When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, okay, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant went before the people. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the river, river and the Jordan was at flood stage, the waters coming down from above stood and rose in a heap very far away, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. So, over, it's interesting, this little section of verses, over and over and over again, it refers to this ark, the ark of the covenant of God, and how it went before the people. Um, and it symbolizes God's presence with them there in the middle of that dry riverbed of that formerly flooded Jordan River. Their God was with them in the, pa- in the face of something overwhelming, something that for them seemed impossible. Uh, Keith Hartzell tells a, a helpful story. He says, I was with a friend a few years ago in California, and as we were driving around the busy streets of L.A., I noticed that his cell phone was locked with an unusual password. Pro nobis. Um, I asked him what pro nobis meant and why he chose that for a password, and he told me it was Latin and it meant for us. And then he suddenly started choking up, and I thought, why would those two Latin words cause somebody to choke up? He composed himself, and then he explained that after walking through deep personal pain, true healing came for him when he learned that God is for us. Pro nobis. My friend said that after his his parents' divorce, a season when he assumed that God didn't care or that God had given up on him, he finally found hope through those two simple words. And he decided to believe that God was pro-nobis, that God had even sent Christ to die for him. He could then decide to lay down his life for others. See, God is pro-nobis. Okay? God is for us. That's, that's the God of, of the early passage of, of the book of Joshua. And we love the God of Joshua with all our hearts because he is for us, right? even us. And that takes us into the second chapter of the book of Joshua, really. The beautiful thing that we see on display next about God in chapter 2, which is Rahab's story, is that God is even for the likes of us. So verse 1, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. If you scroll down chapter 2 a little farther, we find this prostitute Rahab confessing beautifully her faith in God. She says that Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And if you remember, there's no known contact 
of Rahab with any Israelites before this time. Somehow, God got his message to her. God had sought her out of all people and given her, even this, this prostitute Rahab, grace to believe. And she had two huge strikes against her. She was a Canaanite. Okay? And as Carson reminded us last week, these were not nice people. Um, Deuteronomy describes them this way. It says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, the way of the people in the land, the way of the Canaanites. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And Rahab was a Canaanite. She was one of those worshipers, one of those people. And if that is enough of disqualifying Mark, of course, we know she was a Canaanite harlot, a prostitute in our language. Now, I'm not going to go into detailed description about what all that means, but for sure, these two strikes put her in the category of least likely to be chosen, right? A Canaanite prostitute. And yet our God seeks her out, grants her faith, and if we can use the language of the New Testament, he adopts her to be his daughter. And that's really good news for people like you and me. Okay. It means there's grace enough for us. There's love enough for us. The mercy and love of God, it's even for people like you and me, with whatever our pasts are full of. I like the way Sean Brown tells this story. He says, he says, I have a small collection of baseball cards, and the card that's worth the most is called Future Stars, and it's valued at about 100 bucks. There are three players on this card. The first is Jeff Snyder. Snyder played one year of professional baseball, pitched in 11 games, and gave up 13 earned runs in those 11 games. The second player is Bobby Bonner, who played four years of baseball, but only appeared in 61 games with eight runs batted in and zero home runs. The third future star, he says, played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles, appeared in 3,001 games. He came to bat 11,551 times, collected 3,184 hits, 431 home runs, and batted in 1,695 runs. His name is Cal Ripken Jr. Okay. And there's the card. He says, now imagine if you met Bobby Bonner, and he shook your hand, and he bragged, did you know that my baseball card is worth over $100? <laughs> you would laugh, because you know the worth of the card has nothing to do with him. Sean says this, he says, that's how it is when we come to Christ and point to our good works, our statistics. And we say, is this good enough? If you want to hold your stats up to God, he says, you don't have a chance. But when you put your faith in Christ, his statistics become yours and your baseball card becomes worth a lot because of someone else's stats. He says, Bobby Bonner and Jeff Snyder's baseball card is worth $100 not because of their statistics, but because of what someone else has done. Right? And so we're all... We're, we're a bunch of Bobby Bonners and Jeff Snyders, right? 
We're a bunch of Rahabs. We don't deserve to be here. But here we are. And I love that about God. The God of Joshua gives grace to the undeserving. Um, To Rahab and, and to me and to you. It's a beautiful thing about God. Now, at this point in this story, as you saw in a little video, um, the people have trekked through the desert for decades, and now they find themselves staring down a river at flood stage. And here's that picture I showed you earlier of the Jordan River at flood stage. It's out of its banks, and they're going to cross that thing. He calls that to our attention in verse 15. The Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout the time of harvest just to set the stage for God to do something mighty, something miraculous for his people. So again, back in that verse 15, as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water and the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. And just so that we're not tempted to try to ascribe this to some natural phenomenon, um, God links it precisely to when the priests entered the water. It says in verse 15, when the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, that's when the water was dammed up. And and it's linked to their exit as well. In chapter 4, it says, when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on the dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned. So it's like, Priest's foot hits the water, water goes away. It comes out of where the water's supposed to be, the water, water comes back. Um, and they want the next generation to remember it well. They put those 12 stones that they took out of the Jordan, you remember? Joshua set them up as a monument at Gilgal, and when he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. I, I love that our God is mighty, that he can do great miracles to rescue his people and usher them into the life that he has for them. Okay? That's our God. That's the God of Joshua. And this is the unfolding story of God and his people. He rescues them from Egypt by those ten plagues. He he rescues them from Pharaoh's army by parting the Red Sea. He feeds them all those years in the desert by the miracle of manna coming down from heaven. And, And now the Jordan parts. It's dammed up so that they can cross and enter into the land he promised them. And, and this is what we celebrated just a couple of weeks ago in the, gen, in the resurrection of Jesus, right? It's God doing the greatest of miracles to rescue us and usher us into the life that he has for us. I love that God is mighty and able to rescue his people. So, there's one last thing I want to underscore for you today about that, that's in these early chapters that I, that I love about God. And um, there are a lot more 
a good exercise for you this week would be reread these first five chapters of Joshua and just look for God. Don't, don't worry about anything else necessarily, but just look for God and see who he is. One last thing. I love that God is trustworthy. Okay. Um, I can't imagine what it's like to worship an untrustworthy God. But over and over again in these opening chapters of Joshua, God asked Joshua and his people to trust him. And this is what that ask sounds like. Be strong and courageous. Verse 6. Verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. Just two verses later, verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. We go all the way to chapter 10 of the book where Joshua is going to pass this along to the people. Joshua says to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Essentially, God is saying here, trust me and don't give in to fear. Trust me. Trust me and be brave. And this ask that God makes of us Trust me, it's rooted in his faithfulness. You go back to our first chapter again, the third verse. He says to Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon in the promised land, I will give to you, just as I promised to Moses. That's why they call it the promised land, because God promised he would do it. Be strong and courageous, God says, because you can trust me to keep my word to you. And Joshua did, big time. He trusted God so much. And I love this little detail in the first chapter of Joshua. And in verse 10, Joshua commands the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are going to pass over this Jordan to go in and take possession of the land. So he is trusting God that in three days they're going to be across the Jordan, this flooded river. And sure enough, you go down to chapter 3, it's exactly what happened. It says, at the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, get the Ark of the Covenant and set out from your place and follow it. And it was on that third day that they crossed the Jordan. Our God, our God, he can be trusted That's what the book of Joshua says to us. Trust me. Be strong. Be courageous. Trust me. Nobody probably exemplifies this more than a a lady that you probably read about in elementary school. Her name is Harriet Tubman. Um, Harriet Tubman was born into slavery on a Maryland plantation in 1822. Her mother had told her stories from the Bible, which developed in her, they say, a deep and abiding faith in God. And uh, when Harriet was about 26 years old, she learned that she might be sold away from her family. So that, for her, was the time that she knew she had to escape. And so she made her way some 90 miles north along the Underground Railroad. She traveled at night to avoid slave catchers following the North Star until she reached Pennsylvania and freedom. And once there, she dared to make a dangerous decision, it says. She risked her own freedom in order to give it to others. For eight years, she led scores of slaves north to freedom. And during these trips, she relied upon God to guide and protect her. She never once lost a runaway slave, never once. 
As Harriet herself put it later, I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a passenger on that underground railroad. But she gave all the credit to God, and I love this quote. She says, Twant me, twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust to you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. She says, and he always did. See, I love that Joshua shows us a God who can be trusted. Whatever, whatever it is you're up against, you can trust God with it. Things that seem impossible, that they're beyond your ability to sort out, you can trust God with that. Harriet Tubman was spot on. I trust to you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. It's perfect. So we can trust God. Joshua tells us we can trust God. With whatever we're worried about, with whatever we're fearful of, with whatever we don't know, whatever we can't handle, whatever we've done that's troubling to us, we can trust God. We can trust him to be with us, to be for us. Even when we don't deserve it, our God is for us. He'll be with us. He can be trusted to do miracles to rescue us in our hour of greatest need as we, as we walk with him to bring us into the life that he has for us. And so, let me invite you, begin to read your Bibles this way, okay? Open up your Bible and let one of the first things that you look for be this. What do I learn about God? What do I see about God? What helps me love my God more here? Um, so that loving God really can increasingly become your tennis ball, the thing you do with joy and abandon because you've seen him and you know him and you love him. Um, and I want to invite you to, to, to remember to pray that little Peter's prayer, right? Lord, you know that I love you. Help me to love you more. And, and, and pray that, try, begin to set up a way, figure out a way for you to pray that every day. And you can pray it this day. You can pray it when you come to this table, right? You can pray, Lord, you know that I love you. Help me to love you more. Because you remember that we were bought in love from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light at great cost by the life's blood of Jesus. Peter says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray as we get ready to approach the table together. So, Lord, help us, help us to love you more than all the other tennis balls bouncing around that are vying for our heart's affections. Help us to love you more. You know that we love you, Lord. Help us to love you more because you are with us, even with us, and you are mighty to do good and great works on our behalf because you love us so. And you are trustworthy 
faithful to your promises. Oh God, help us to love you more. And as we come to this table now, God, we come because we love you. And we love you because you loved us first in Christ who did give his life for us, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed as an expression of love for our sins to secure our rescue from life apart from you for all eternity. So, we remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.